You're listening to the Outstanding Life Podcast with your host, Johnny D, the motivational cowboy. 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 As a motivational speaker, Johnny D impacts audiences around the world with his message of living the outstanding life. He's a best-selling author, MC, and two-time Grammy-considered artist. This podcast is a place where Johnny D can introduce you to his outstanding friends and share funny, interesting, and heart-provoking stories. Ladies and gentlemen, buckle up. Here comes your host, Johnny D. Hey everybody, I'm Johnny D, the Motivational Cowboy. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Outstanding Life Podcast. Want to say good morning and a big hello to all my friends listening on Dirt Road Radio, KYDT 103.1 FM and KBFS 1450 AM. Today, we are going to have a special guest with us. His name is Paul McEnroe. Paul is an award-winning engineer who developed multiple state-of-the-art technologies during his long career including more than two decades in leadership roles at IBM. He grew up in Ohio, was valedictorian at the University of Dayton, and earned advanced degrees in engineering from Purdue and Stanford universities. Ladies and gentlemen, please say hello to Paul McEnroe. Paul, how are you? I'm doing great, Johnny. Thank you very much. Well, good morning. And I know it's a little bit earlier there in California than it is here in Michigan. But man, what an honor to uh, to uh, wake up, you know, doing this podcast with you. So thank you for taking time to hang out with us. It's my pleasure and, uh, and, and honor to be on your program. Well, before we get into your brand new book, I want to get to know and have the listeners get to know you. You were born... From what I understand, you were actually born in Mount Clemens, Michigan. Is that true? That's true. What's the story behind that? Well, I actually was born in an orphanage there uh, in, in Mount Clemens. It turns out that my parents had come from the coal mining country of West Virginia and out of work in the middle of the Depression. Didn't know each other down there. Both went to Michigan looking for work in the auto industry. They were still building a few cars in Detroit, and Mount Clemens is right next door. So uh, they had a romance, and I was born, but they had no money, whatever, and uh, they weren't able to take care of me. So I went to this orphanage and was adopted by people who lived in Ohio, and they became my parents, and that's who I call my parents now. I didn't even know my, uh, my natural parents. And I had a very nice uh, life growing up in Dayton, Ohio. And my parents, uh, they they didn't have any money to speak of or anything like that. Uh, They didn't have much education. My dad never went to school and my mom uh, didn't graduate from high school, but they impressed upon me the importance of education and demonstrated hard work and so on. And uh, that was, uh, it was a very good life for me growing up in Dayton. Paul, you know, a question that gets asked to me all the time is how can you, you know, Johnny D, how can you be a cowboy from Detroit? And Paul, I'm going to ask you, how can you be a cowboy from Ohio? Now, the the listeners did not hear me say that right now you live on a ranch out in California and the ranch is, I think you said over a thousand acres. It's like a thousand eight acres. That's right. And then you also... You lease another 600 acres from your neighbor. So you're working, you have a working ranch of over 1,600 acres. How did a man from Ohio end up being being a cowboy? Well, just, uh, it takes a long time. <laughs> so uh, you, you should have to wait for some of your goals. Uh, my dad, <laughs> uh, he was uh, an orphan as I was, and was taken in by farmers in Iowa, another place where, you know, you wouldn't think of cowboys so much as heavy farming country. And, uh, but he, uh, he had to run away from a bad situation when he was a teenager. So uh, in 1903, when he was a teenager, he ran away to Idaho. And uh, he learned the Western way of life uh, in Idaho before World War One, which he did serve in, uh, in the trenches in France. And uh, my mother was out visiting him uh, because her father homesteaded in Idaho and uh, they met and were married uh, and uh, moved back. And then my mother, who they lived in the West for four or five years, but my mother uh, was from a large Irish clan and wanted to go back to Ohio where the rest of the people, her brothers and sisters were living. And so they moved back there and uh, then they adopted me uh, after 20 years of not having any kids. And then uh, as I was growing up, my dad was telling the stories to me 
of his life in the West. And, you know, he heard the words of Horace Greeley, go West, young man. And he did that. Uh, it was almost contemporaneously. It was as after Horace said it, of course, but nevertheless, it was the, the, the word of the time. And, uh, you know, so he, he got me very interested in horses and ranching life and the West. And I love topography and the wide open spaces and so on and so forth. And, uh, I just always wanted to be a cowboy, but uh, I went to school and I had to get a job and then I got married and raised children. And, uh, you know, I did uh, while I was raising the kids uh, and traveling around at IBM, uh, bought them ponies and horses and and and, and actually started uh, raising some uh, horses in the backyard. But uh, I didn't really get into the ranching thing until I retired. And when I retired, uh from the computer industry, so to speak, uh, that's when I bought a ranch. And uh, that was in the middle 90s, uh, 30 years ago, uh, almost. And uh, so that's when we bought the ranch and moved here. And, uh, you know, I'm very happy on the ranch. I love every minute of it. I'm, I'm sitting here in my office, which uh, doubles as a tack room. I've got saddles all around me and I'm looking out the window I can see cows on the hills and horses in the valley. What does your wife think about you still getting on your horse three or four days a week? She's kind of worried about that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, was she always, I mean, is she a cow girl or is she more of a city girl? She is, uh, you know, uh, my, the, the, the wife that, uh, to whom I was married for the first 30 years of uh, my married life, uh, was killed in an auto accident. And then uh, I was fortunate three or four years later to be introduced to uh, Tina, my uh, current wife, uh, by my daughter, Maureen. Uh, and uh, Tina lived in the Santa Barbara area. And uh, that's how we picked out a ranch together and moved here. Uh, and uh, we've been married, uh, well, next year it'll be 30 years uh, now. And um, so she was uh, actually the queen of the Salinas, uh, California Rodeo. Uh, and uh, that was back in 1970. She probably shoot me for saying that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so, uh, yeah, she's uh, she's an outstanding writer. And uh She's she was the cowbell of the local area here and so on and so forth. And uh, she's the president of the local historical museum in Santa Inez, which is uh, the valley that we live in. Oh, that's incredible. And then you guys also in 2011, you guys founded uh, the McEnroe Reading and Language Arts Clinic at the University of California there in Santa Barbara. Tell us a little bit about that and why you started that. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, it, it's 90% my wife, uh, Tina. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she's uh, a reading teacher and uh, studied that in school and has her degrees in that and so on and so forth. So she wanted to start something up to help people that had difficulties with reading. You know, if you can't read, you can't get anywhere. You can't get through college. You can't be a success in life if you cannot read. And a lot of people, particularly in the area where we are, where there's a lot of uh English is a second language uh, situation in families. And so the reading clinic is very good at taking uh, young students who are in the first few grades of grade school and uh, are reading two or three years behind. The situation is that uh, at UCSB, it's a it's a wonderful college, of course, and they teach teachers. And so they teach them how to teach reading. And that's part of what the reading clinic does. But in addition to that, they bring uh, students in from outside the community, and they typically gain two years of reading in six months. In other words, if they're in the third grade reading at first grade level, they come to the clinic for their session, which lasts the best part of a year, and then they'll gain two years in reading. And uh, they now we've been doing it uh, since uh, well, I don't know, I can't remember, but it's it's been a it's been more than a decade. And uh, yeah, two thousand eleven. Yeah, the kids love it, and uh, they're being very successful at uh, high school, and they're off in college now. So it's it's been going on for some time. Thank you to you and your wife, Tina, for, for, for doing that and giving back. I mean, that, that is absolutely amazing. So thank you for that. Um, you know— I have to ask, you know, you've gone to some pretty big universities. You're, you know, valedictorian of your um, college. But I have to ask, 
What was Paul McEnroe like as a child? Well, I was just like every other kid, you know, uh, nothing special. Uh, I, uh, I grew up in a, a, a little residential neighborhood in, in Dayton and uh, walked to uh, uh, parochial school every morning and uh, had 40 other students in the classroom and two classrooms in our grade. And, you know, it was just a very typical uh, growing up uh, childhood in uh you know, mid-sized Midwestern city, nothing, nothing special. I didn't do, I mean, I did okay in grade school, but it wasn't uh, anything to write home about. I don't think uh, I didn't get in much trouble or anything. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I got okay grades, but I really, my dad began to convince me that, boy, it's really important. So when I went to high school, uh, I really did uh, turn the tables, and uh, I, I I did very very well in high school. Uh, I really started focusing on uh, working hard there, and I could see, you know, my dad had worked hard his whole life, and uh, he hadn't gone to school, so nobody ever taught him to read. He taught himself a little bit. He could read the headlines in a newspaper and that kind of thing but uh he really convinced me that uh, you, you had to work hard and do that and i i got jobs just doing little things like uh delivering newspapers and then i made a big deal out of it i started out with 30 customers and i got up to 150 customers and i was offering all kind of special deals to my customers and so on <laughs> and then the newspaper company uh cox news in dayton ohio Dayton daily news they hired me to be a full-time uh, substitute for the gentlemen, uh, adults, who ran the uh, newspaper delivery uh, places. And so that was a full-time job, and I got that at 16 in high school and, uh, you know, went on from there. So I had a full-time job from those uh, from that early age and uh, my high school was very good let me have uh, you know scheduled my classes so I got off in the afternoons early and I could go to work Paul I have to ask why engineering then when when, when you got through high school well, and- well that's a very good question uh, I actually didn't even pick that out because I wanted to go into engineering I thought maybe I would be better in sales and uh, management or uh, law and so on. But when I talked to all the people who were in those fields, they said, well, rather than just go and study, you know, pre-law or uh, uh, business or something like that, go get a degree in engineering where you've got a real good technical base and background, and then go to graduate school and get your MBA or whatever you want to do. And so that's kind of the route I followed. I, uh, I did go into uh, engineering and I uh, I liked it. And then uh, when I graduated from engineering school at Dayton, why then I had opportunities to go on scholarships, free scholarships to the top schools in the country. And I thought, well, I can't pass that up. So then I did that. So then I had to put the business part of it off until, uh, you know, another five or 10 years after that. So that's what I did. And uh, after you got all that lined up, then you've got an investment in it. So I got nice job offers from uh, nice companies like like IBM. And I went there and, uh, you know, then things just unfolded very fortunately for me. Paul, you know, that being said, you are a, literally, you're a cowboy who helped create what we know today as the barcode. Now, those of you that are listening, you're like, did Johnny just say the barcode? Yes, the barcode. I mean, the barcode that has, what, uh, Paul, is there like 10 million scans a day using the barcode? Is that true? No, 10 10 billion. 10 billion. 10 billion times a day. I mean, a barcode literally comes on everything. So how does a cowboy help develop the barcode? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You, you, you know, um, I, as I said, I, I, I learned from my dad, uh, several things, uh, in addition to the, you know, education is important. You gotta, you gotta, get to be a decent scientist uh an engineer is just an applied scientist really and um you know you work hard and you take advantage of opportunities that knock on your door and so on and so forth and um so i just uh the, the other thing is you, you're good to other people and uh, they're good back to you and you recognize the importance of teamwork so um ibm 
gave me the opportunity to start them in a new business. And I got to pick the business. There's a long story behind that that is described in the book. I got to pick the business. And so I did pick the business. I picked point of sale uh, for supermarkets and retail stores. Uh, so, you know, Safeways and uh, Macy's and so on, those different kinds of stores. And I had the background uh, of nine years of research in IBM before I started it. I started it in 1969, but I had started at IBM in 1960. So I had the opportunity to look back on the experiences I had. Fortunately, I did things like scanning. And we could see that in both of these different types of uh, retail markets, supermarkets and retail stores, uh, department stores, they needed item identification. Well, I knew how to scan. I knew how to uh, do whatever you had to do at the check stand and so on. And IBM had a lot of talent. And so um, I treated IBM like a venture capital uh, organization, uh, asked for funding. They gave me the funding. Uh, I was able to pull together a team. I did a lot of study on what kind of people do I need in the team and we picked people out. I brought them into the team and not a big team. We had uh, uh, six or seven uh, guys, depending on whether you count myself or not. And uh, we uh, got down to it. We looked at what the what the customers needed, what the supermarkets needed, what the retail stores needed. And we uh, created technology that uh, we could mark an item and we could scan the item and we could record the data about that item and we could transmit it around very, very fast. And we could do all this, all of it very, very fast so that you wouldn't be delayed when you're standing at the check stand. And uh, that was what the world needed at that time. So that's the way it worked out. Paul, you know, one thing um, that I, I did not understand, and, and I want you to walk us through this. When I was reading your book, I didn't realize that a bunch of lines, of or, or I should say what appears to be a bunch of lines has so much math behind it. Why is there so much math? Can you kind of like talk a little bit about that or it, or am I crazy? No, no, no. I mean, yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a different form of, uh, of, of numbers and of uh, recording numbers and so on. So uh, yes, they are lines, but they're lines uh, of a different width. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's uh, different kinds of arithmetic. There's uh, digital arithmetic, which we all use. It's, it's based on the numbers one through 10 and so on. But there's also binary, which is based on just one and zero or two numbers. And uh, so we use uh, sort of a binary type of arithmetic. And uh, it works out that if you need to have uh, 10 digits, which is how many we have uh, in our number system, uh, you can uh, represent uh, 10 different numbers if you can have two bars and two spaces. That it, you just work the math out that way. Uh, and uh, so that's what there is. So if you look at a barcode and you look at the numbers below on the bottom of the barcode, uh, you will see that uh, the uh, th there are uh, two black bars and two spaces above every number. And uh, it, 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 some of the bars are uh, of a different width than the others. And so that's what the scanner reads. The scanner reads how the two bars, uh, how wide the two bars are. It doesn't read them by measuring their width because we found out early in the game that uh, for inexpensive printers, which we required for the first five years of the use of the barcode before the, the packages all had the barcode printed on them. After that, it got a lot easier, but the, but it had to get started. And if it didn't start successfully, it would have been a failure. So uh, we we had to uh, use the, these two bars and two spaces to define the numbers. And we had to do that with bars that were printed in a rather poor fashion. That is to say, some bars were too fat and and, and therefore the spaces between them were too skinny. And so we came up with a barcode that is very good at canceling the errors. It cancels the errors that you get uh, from reading bars and spaces that are made to be 
uh, wrong because there's too much ink or not enough ink in the printer. So anyway, uh, that's how the, the, the math comes in as to what kind of errors you can have and still read. So our code, when compared with the 14 other codes that were submitted for international uh, selection to be the universal product code, uh, we had far and away the best reliability, uh, the best rigor in being able to read the code uh, correctly. And uh, that's the reason that it's very successful. And as you know now, I mean, you can take an item that's even got some frost on it or uh, is wrinkled up or whatever, and it will read it. In fact, we even put such sophistication into the mathematics behind it that if one of the bars or one set of the bars is completely messed up, you can't even read it with your human eye, the code, if there's only one set of bars mixed up, uh, the code uh, being uh, supported by the little computer that's on the check stand can actually calculate what was there before by looking at the other nine uh, bars. And uh, that's called error detection and correction. So it will then correct it and go back and put the correct one back on so uh, that you couldn't read. So it is pretty sophisticated. Paul, did you ever think in a million years when you were working on this project with you and your team that it would be as big as it is today? Never as big as it is today. We did think, so I started this in 69 and it was selected as the international uh, standard code in 73. So four years. Now, at that point, when it was selected, we thought, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, this is going to be a big thing. And we knew it was going to be international, too. Uh, so we knew it was going to be everywhere. But it is more everywhere than we thought it would be. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we didn't imagine 10 billion a day being uh, being scanned and being printed uh, all around the world. Uh, that's for sure. Paul, how did you learn to be a good leader, especially during like this project? Is this something you always knew that you were good at or is it something that you had to learn? Oh, uh, well, certainly I had to learn it. Uh, I, I, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't, I don't know. Uh, I, I had uh, good luck. I, I was, uh, <laughs> I, I, I was, you know, when I started out, as I pointed out, uh, in, in high school, um, I uh, had a job uh, of managing paper boys, you know, and, and what, what this is, is that, you know, there's a garage uh, in various residential areas around the town. And uh, they deliver the newspapers there about one thirty or two o'clock in the afternoon. And somebody has to go and pick them up, uh, maybe a thousand of them and take them around the newsstands. Then they come back and then all the newspaper boys, a hundred of them, appear and they each want their 50 papers. So you have to manage these guys. And I did this in all areas of Dayton. So, I mean, it was, uh, you know, areas where the, all the people, it was a black neighborhood or it was a transitional neighborhood or it was a well-to-do neighborhood, all different kinds of people all mixed up. So I did get to learn to work with all of those kinds of people. And then uh, I worked my way through uh, high school and college. I had a 40 hour a week job, uh, during my last two years of high school and all four years of college at Dayton. And, uh, so that was good experience as well. And, uh, actually I was in ROTC. I tried to get into the army, but I flunked out, but of, uh, for health reasons. But, um, I, I, I got, uh, I was very strong in what they call the Pershing rifles, which was a, you know, a drill team in, in, in college. And that's all people oriented. I was uh, captain of the debate team for four years in college and a couple years in high school. And that's more, uh, work at working with people and uh, being able to stand up on your feet and having to ad lib uh, answers that, uh, you know, have some uh, credibility. And uh, so I, and, and by the way, I never did find any other engineers doing that. Uh, we traveled around the country debating with different schools like Harvard and so on and so forth. But uh, 
all the other debaters were uh, pre-law people or uh, English majors or business majors or something, not big engineers. So all those things kind of contributed. And then when I went through Dayton, um, I, I worked, uh, as I said, 40 hours a week. I worked for White Patterson Air Force Base, which was the uh, development uh, headquarters for uh, the uh, United States Air Force and uh, all the missiles and everything that they had. And so I got four years of experience at that and I was a manager and I had 10 or 15 students working for me. So I got that before I ever even went to uh, work in uh, in industry. Uh, and, and, and that all helped. And then the people I worked for were very, very good. And the teachers I had were very good at the uh, University of Dayton at, at Purdue. Uh, they were they were just outstanding people. And they took time with you and uh, they helped me do whatever I did. Looking back, Paul, how proud are you of your team? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of the team. The team is fantastic. I, I had uh, great confidence in them. Uh, you know, a couple of days ago, I was uh, watching uh, <clears throat> Zach Johnson. I don't know if you know him or not. If you're into golf, he was leading the Ryder Cup uh, in uh, in Rome. And uh, they had just lost all their matches on the first day. And and uh, they, they said to him, you know, well, what do you think of your team? And, you know, he just looked him in the eye and he said, yeah, I'm so proud of this team. And, you know, that's kind of the way I feel. And, uh, it, you know, he said that with the same amount of vim and vigor that he would have said it if they had won everything, but instead they had lost. So um, I, I had a, a fantastic team. Uh, I had uh, older guys that had experience and had uh, had a patent history and so on and so forth. And I had younger guys that were uh, just fresh out of school. And uh, they, uh, they, they were very uh, enthusiastic and they uh, had learned uh, newer technology that the older guys you know, when they went to school, that technology wasn't even taught. So it was a great mixture. And uh, I, I did uh, work before picking, uh, you know, before selecting the members of the team to make sure we had somebody in each different uh, specialty that we needed. For example, uh, I, I picked out George Lauer because he was very good uh, as an innovator uh, and uh, he, he could do uh, a lot of different things. And I assigned him to be uh, the key person on the scanner itself and, and on the on the code itself. Uh, I had a, a young guy named uh, Roger Kaus who uh, had just come out of school and was brilliant and had worked for uh, a project that tried to do this kind of thing before and failed. But he had all kind of advanced ideas and the, the other part of the group uh, didn't recognize his ideas were uh, as good as they were, I don't think. So that project failed, and I found out what he had done, even though it was a failed project. And uh, he was in Minnesota. I flew up there and begged him to come and so on and so forth. And he came down was a key member of the team. Uh, I picked out two people in uh, communications. Uh, one was uh, young enough to be the son of the other one, but uh, they were a team and they worked together and they uh, spoke the same language and uh, that was invaluable and and so on. And so I was very fortunate that uh, the people were available and uh, I was able to get them at the right time and bring them all on together. And of course, over over time, the project got a lot bigger. It went from six or seven to a couple hundred, but uh, that took uh, that took four, five or six years. So you know, you being retired, you're working, you know, on your ranch, you're riding your horse, you're doing all this stuff. You're just hanging out, having fun, and you decide to write a book. And I have to ask, why did you want to write a book? Is it something you've always wanted to do? Have you always wanted to be an author? No, I never wanted to be an author. <laughs> I don't even like writing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 that's not, I like to talk. I'd rather talk than write. <laughs> uh, in fact, I did talk to write the book. I did. The, I dictated the whole thing on, uh, <laughs> on a uh you know, uh, on a dictation uh, computer. But uh, basically, uh, I wanted to 
uh, and I, I had a lot of fun things happen that were interesting and good stories and exciting uh, in my social life. And uh, I decided to write a book about that. It was all about being a cowboy and about uh, horseback riding. And uh, I, I, I did a lot of English riding, too. And uh, I even while I was at IBM, believe it or not, in the backyard, I had a couple of uh, mares and I uh, bred racehorses and raced them at, uh, you know, Belmont Park and Saratoga and Finger Lakes. And uh, when I was living at IBM headquarters back in New York. And uh, so uh, and then uh, <clears throat> I had a lot of activities, all kinds of different activities with dogs and horses and the whole equestrian world. And so, uh, you know, my grandkids and Everybody, they were all talking, and particularly my wife said, hey, you need to write all this stuff down. And she was particularly pointing out about the stuff you've done with the barcode. So I wrote a, started, I wrote a memoir, and uh, it was uh, about, I don't know, half and half or, or maybe even a little more than half in the, in the uh, people area and in the uh, – in the equestrian area and in the cowboy area and so on. And uh, then I, you know, it had drafts of the book and so passed it around a little bit. And the comments came back, hey, Paul, the whole world is interested in this part about the barcode. Uh, but, you know, just your family and your close friends are interested in the other part. So you need to just write a book focusing on the barcode. So basically, uh, I wrote more detail about the barcode. I took a lot of the equestrian and uh, cowboy stuff out, but I left some of it in. And so that's kind of how the book happened. It, it, it turned out that uh, not much had been, nothing had ever been written that I know of in uh, describing how the code was developed, how it was created, how uh, it was invented, and, and, and all of the complex systems work that was required to uh, support the code. The code is just one little thing. There's a big system that uh, everything that's on the check stand, you know, if you look at it uh, and you think about what's there, you got a printer, you got a keyboard, you got a display, you got an intelligent computer. It's a PC. But this was a decade before the PCs. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so uh, that's basically what it was. So, um, I decided, okay, we're going to write, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell the story of how we put together the team, how we got there in the first place, and how it went, and uh, what the problems were, and so on. And there had been uh, quite a lot of uh, misunderstanding uh, in, in, on the internet, particularly, uh, about, okay, what, uh, wh who did what? in the world of uh, the, the barcode. And, uh, you know, there are presidential stories uh, with Bush and so on and so forth. I tell all of these in the book. And uh, th there was a lot of misunderstanding. And uh, I decided I better correct all that because, you know, uh, in another 20 or 30 years, everybody that had anything to do with it will be gone and nobody will know. So I did uh, think that was important. So I've been very... Uh, meticulous to make sure that everything is exactly correct that I did put in the book. So, so now it's a memoir, but uh, it's it's got a lot of detail about the barcode in it. And then for the technologists that are really interested in the detailed rigor and the mathematics and everything that most people don't want to bother reading, I separated that out and put it in an appendix to the book. But the appendix I didn't write in the last couple of years. I went back to the analysis that I had done and presented at the uh, in 1971 at the National Retail Merchants Association uh, convention in Dallas, Texas, and uh, I printed that article out. And that is the appendix. It's 40 pages, and uh, for people that you know uh, want to read the math and, uh, and and the science and to set everybody straight about what was done when. Because there's a lot of stuff written that IBM never got interested in this thing until a few weeks before it was selected in 72. And they just selected it because it was IBM. Well, this proves that that's not true because this is a detailed book about, I mean, a detailed appendix 
which was a booklet at the time that was written back in uh, 71. And it shows all the work was already done in 71. So it, it's the kind of thing that uh, is indisputable in setting the record straight. Now, when you were at IBM, I heard that you met you know, famous people, but one of the famous people that I'm very, very intrigued to hear about, you met Johnny Cash. Tell us oh, about, Johnny Cash. yeah, tell us yeah. about you meeting Johnny Cash and I, I think you had dinner with him or something like that. Well, what happened is uh, I wanted to recognize all of the wonderful innovators in the laboratory. And so uh, I have to explain that this happened a little later. So the barcode, uh, I, again, I stated in 69, I started it. Uh, I worked on it. It was uh, selected as international standard in 73. And then in 77, uh, we regarded that it was uh, sailing downhill, uh, skiing downhill, sailing with the wind and everything was good. And so, um, I stepped away from the project. So I had been on it full time for eight years. Then I went to IBM headquarters for four years, three years. And then I came back to Raleigh and uh, I was honored to be named the laboratory director of the entire laboratory in Raleigh, which is one of the big labs in IBM that we had. You know, when I got there, there were a thousand engineers. I wanted to grow it uh, significantly. And I added uh, more than another thousand engineers in the four years I was there. And one of the things I wanted to do to motivate people and get them going and everything was to have an award dinner for all of the people that had made significant uh, contributions, either by uh, developing a patent or coming up with a patent or a brilliant idea or some special management thing. So I had this awards dinner. And it uh, was mostly innovation awards. And uh, I thought, well, we need to uh, have more than just a plain dinner. And uh, this is Raleigh, North Carolina. It's not New York City. It's not Los Angeles, San Francisco. So we want to make some kind of a splash. So I was lucky enough to, uh, I got a couple of my secretaries working on it. They call people secretaries in those days. Now they're administrative assistants, but whatever. And uh, we uh, went out and signed up uh, through some lucky chance, uh, Johnny Cash and uh, <clears throat> his wife, uh, who's famous in her own right, uh, to come and perform at that dinner. And uh, we decided to keep it a secret until, uh, you know, the dinner was uh on and we were going to announce the uh, the guest of honor who was going to be the entertainer. And uh, I got up and said, okay, here's our guest. <laughs> I didn't even say his name. And uh, just uh, pulled back the curtain that was at the head. We had almost, you know, almost a thousand people at the dinner, uh, one of the biggest places in Raleigh, and pulled back the, uh, the curtain and the station out walks in all this black uh, Johnny Cash. And of course, the people just all had heart attacks. Uh, good heart attacks. And, uh, you know, uh, he put on quite a wonderful show. So uh, <clears throat> it, that that was uh, the experience. So I did get to have dinner with him that night <laughs> and uh, got to enjoy, uh, you know, uh, an evening of entertainment. And, and, and that, that pattern went on, by the way, for several years after that. Brought in other people. Nobody liked uh, uh, was of the fame of uh, of Johnny Cash. What was Johnny like? Oh, he was uh, he was terrific. He was fantastic. He was really down to earth. Uh, he was all dressed in black, just like you see uh, uh, on TV and so on and so forth. Uh, he has a, a tone in his voice that's just really commanding. I mean, he just uh, he speaks, you know, you just uh, you can hear a pin drop. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody is very quiet. And but, uh, you know, he's he's very interested in people. He was interested in people and uh, how he could help people and people that uh, were uh, less privileged than others. Uh, he had a special feeling for them. Uh, so, yeah, he was he was really fantastic. By the way, the next guy we had, uh, gee, I'm forgetting his name now. Who was the guy that was a, a really great guitar player on Hee Haw? You, ever, you remember that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, 
Oh gosh, I can, I, I I can visually see him right now. I can't think of his name. Yeah, uh, and uh, he he was the next one we had, and he was he was outstanding too, and one of the best string players I ever heard. And he was kind of a cowboy as well. <laughs> and so now everybody's going to be looking up who is this guy. Right, right. <laughs> I'm sorry I brought that up, but I can't remember his name. <laughs> Paul, how can how can people find your book? Right now, you can order it on Amazon uh, and get it uh, immediately in the uh, ebook version. My publisher is Silicon Valley Press. You can get it from them right now. Uh, just uh, just Google Silicon Valley Press, uh, or you can just Google uh, the barcode by Paul McEnroe, and I think it'll come up who prints, it, who's the publisher, and everything. And you can go there and you can get it. And there are a number of uh, bookstores around that are selling it. Paul, what advice would you give to a young professional wanting to get into the industry of technology? You know, uh, you know, either, you know, go pick, pick a good place to go, pick a good firm to go. <laughs> By the way, I like to pick a good place to go where you really enjoy life too. Uh, and, uh, and, but, but pick a firm where, uh, people have quality. You know, when I did this, uh, you know, so many years ago, uh, you kind of picked a company out and you kind of stayed there for your career. Now people move around more often. That's fine. You can move around more often, but, uh, uh, but do pick uh, places where there's respect for the individual, respect for the person, and respect for uh, society, and, uh, and and that has confidence and that uh, will let you, uh, you know, have some uh, freedom in what direction you want to go and will uh, support your continuing education. And then get deep into whatever field of, uh, of, of activity that you're really interested in. Uh, it, it's always good to be deep, uh, dig down, you know, and, uh, and, and work hard and uh, enjoy it. And uh, I think you'll be very successful. You know, this question came in on social media when I put it out there that I was going to be interviewing you. This younger person wrote in, and I thought this was a great question. What is the difference between a QR code and the traditional barcode besides one square and one's rectangle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, well, but the rectangle, the barcode that you're seeing is uh, the importance there is that it is a single directional code. That is to say, if you look at the code, you read the code by uh, reading the bars from left to right or right to left. You can't read them from top to bottom. They're, they're all, they're vertical. So if you imagine a, a, uh, you had a little, a spot of light, uh, from, uh, you know, one of those pens that you point at, uh, you know, at a, at a screen, for example, and, uh, you, you shine that light and you hold it on the left side of the code and you move it across the right. So the, the reflection off of the code will change when it's on a black bar versus when it's on a white space. And uh, it does that every time it moves across a bar. But it's unidirectional. That is to say it only works from either left to right or right to left. It doesn't work up and down because then you're parallel to the bars. You're not going to cross the bars. Now, we read the bars without requiring orientation because inside the scanner, unbeknownst to the user, uh, we have an X scan. We have a scan that takes it left and right. That was very complicated. Don't need to go into that detail, uh, how, how we did that. But that's the way it works. It's just the same as a line is coming across. And the line can either go straight across or at an angle, but it has to go through all the bars. Now, if you take the QR code, the QR code is uh, different. And I, I look at it as an extension of the barcode. So uh, as technology in the uh, many years after the initial introduction of the barcode got to be better and better and you can do more analysis in the computer faster and everything, what they were able to do is to extend the barcode so that not only does it work from left to right and right to left, but it works up and down as well. So it works sideways and it works up and down. So if you look at the QR code, there's a bunch of little squares, itty bitty little squares in the middle of the code, in, in, the, in the bigger square. And so you have uh, so many times more uh, data bits 
And so the real difference in the application is that where the barcode only reads, you know, we started off with 10 digits uh, and we had an extra digit buried inside some of the bars for the country code and so on and so forth that you couldn't read, uh, didn't always be able to read. But if you only need, uh, let's say, a dozen or so uh, numbers, the barcode is perfect. It's very easy, very simple, easy to read, uh, cheap to read. The equipment for it is dirt cheap. Everybody knows how to use it. It's going to go on for a long time. But now, if you uh, want uh, something with a lot more detail in it. If you want to put something uh, on a, uh, let's say you, you want an advertisement and uh, you want to put all the gory details of the product that you've got on there, uh, you know, the barcode wouldn't work because you only got 12 digits. So if you, if you need uh, a thousand digits or a hundred digits or whatever, then uh, you can use the QR code uh, because it's, uh, it's got both uh, horizontal and vertical reading, and each little dot is a data bit, uh, whereas with ours, uh, each pair of lines is a data bit. So the whole line being a data bit takes up a lot more space than the one little bar. So the QR code, uh, I, I support it greatly. I think it's a good thing. Uh, it's uh, very effective. And uh, it's going to grow even faster percentage-wise than the barcode. I don't think it's going to get to the 10 billion number ever. And the barcode, I think, is going to get continue to get bigger and go on for another couple decades at least. But the QR code uh, will uh, grow very much uh, as people learn to put more and more information on it. And they'll be able to make the bars, the, the little squares, smaller and smaller and get more and more information. So, so let me ask you this. What do you think the future is for the barcode? Well, I think the, the barcode, uh, you know, will just uh, keep going. Uh, it's, it, people are very comfortable with it. It's, it's in pretty much all the countries of the world already. It's been out there for 50 years. This is the 50th anniversary year of it's having been selected as the international standard. Um, so I think uh, it's just uh, going to grow uh, more. I mean, uh, probably in another few years, it'll hit 20 billion um, and then maybe even more. But I mean, you're, you're, already it's got more scans per day than there are people in the world. Uh, now, the QR code, I don't think it's going to get to those numbers or anything like that, but it will be very, very helpful uh, for people. I mean, I noticed I bought something the other day, a complicated piece of equipment uh, and uh the uh, there was no instruction manual to it, but they got a QR code. It, you hit the QR code and it's got enough detail in it that it can refer you to other things. So the QR code uh, will increase by bigger percentages, but I don't think it'll ever get to the numbers of the barcode. You are so right. It's so funny. I have a new book, you know, going to be coming out soon. And on several of the pages inside the book, I used the QR code and people can scan it and go right to what I was talking about, to my website, to my podcast or wherever. And it was pretty cool technology to be able to use. You know, Paul, first of all, you know, coming up to the end of the show here, uh, I, I want to say thank you. Thank you for, you know, taking time to to share your history of you as a man, you know, you as an author, your, it, it's, it's just so amazing. But you being a cowboy, I have to ask, and I'll let you go after this, but did you ever have, after all the years of you riding, did you ever have a favorite horse? Oh, yes. Uh, it's a little bit of a sad story for me. My favorite horse died uh, about six weeks ago. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. His, his, yeah, but he had a very good life. His name was Reno. And um, uh, I bought him from a guy named John McCarty, who uh, was, I think, the best horse trainer in our area. He had bought him at sale for the Futurity in Rio because he bought him. He bought him as a, uh, I think, a, a, a weanling up there or a long yearling or, or just a yearling and brought him home and trained him here on his ranch. He has a 15,000 acre ranch. I bought him at four years old and uh, I rode him until he was uh, 29, uh, which was this year. And uh, he looked gorgeous. He's a black horse. He was uh, by just plain colonel. He was well-bred. 
And uh, I wrote him for almost 10 years without a bridle. I mean, not never, but I mean, I wrote him out gathering cattle on the ranch. I worked him uh, in the arena. I even competed with him without a bridle. Uh, he, he was so well-trained. You just, I had a little nylon cord that uh, dropped around his uh, chest and uh, that's all I needed. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he roped and uh, he cut and he, <laughs> and one time uh, my son came down and uh, he was, he, he, he needed a horse to go in a, uh, an English competition. He took him in the English competition put an English saddle on him <laughs> and uh, he on Friday night I taught him to jump and uh, on Saturday he won the jumping competition on this horse holy uh, cow that's yeah, awesome and uh, my granddaughter learned to ride on him and uh, you know he would follow her around like a dog I mean she you know seven year old running all over the place and the horse is like three steps behind her and uh you know, uh, so he was just one of those kind of horses, and uh, he got a, uh, a syndrome of uh, sweets and sugars and so on and so forth that uh, caused the laminitis, and I didn't want him to suffer and so on, and it, it, it's a bad thing. And so uh, he, he looked just gorgeous. He looked like – my vet said, you know, he could pass for 10 years old when he was 29. Wow. And his coat was sleek and everything, but he was going to be in terrible pain with this uh, laminitis. So I, I had to do the right thing and put him down. So, but he was my favorite horse and uh, he's uh, buried. This, I have a, we have a pet cemetery here. It's called Pet Cemetery. And uh, he's, he's buried there. And um, uh, along with a couple dogs and horses that uh, also had great meaning to us. Paul McEnroe, I cannot thank you enough. The cowboy who helped create the barcode, author of the brand new book called The Barcode, and I encourage all of you to go and pick it up. Paul, I can't thank you enough for hanging out with us here on the Outstanding Life Podcast. Thank you so much. And I think that, you know, I may have to have you back on the show so we can talk some more because I can probably go for another hour talking with you. I'd love that. That'd be great. Paul, again, thank you so much for you know sharing your story with us right here on the Outstanding Life Podcast. And if you missed any part of this podcast, don't worry about it. You can go to wherever you listen to podcasts and look up Outstanding Life Podcast. Hey, I'm Johnny D, the Motivational Cowboy, telling all of you, be safe, have fun, have yourself an outstanding day, and we'll see you next time right here on the Outstanding Life Podcast. Hey, I'm Johnny D, the Motivational Cowboy. Are you planning a conference, convention, meeting, assembly, or any live event that needs a guest speaker? I would love to be a part of it. For more information, visit MotivationalCowboy.com. And don't forget to check out my Outstanding Life podcast every Sunday here on Dirt Road Radio, KYDT 103.1 FM and KBFS 1450 AM. Have an outstanding day. Thanks for listening to the Outstanding Life Podcast. Follow Johnny D on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Motivational Cowboy. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, advertise, or would like to make a donation, please visit MotivationalCowboy.com. And remember to have an outstanding day.